0: Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys.
1: Hello, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Our guest this afternoon is going to be Christopher Redmond Esquire of the Chris Redmond Law Firm in Overland Park, Kansas. Before we get into our program this afternoon, I have to make this legal by giving you the following disclosure. Uh, This information is not intended to be legal advice and may not be used as legal advice. Legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case. Each effort has been made to assure that this information is up-to-date. It is not intended to be a full and exhaustive exploration of the law in any areas, nor should it be used to replace the advice of your own legal counsel. Any opinions expressed are the opinions of the speakers. With that said, uh, Chris, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you with us. Uh, Before we get uh, into... The program this afternoon. I would appreciate it if you would be kind enough to give our listeners a little of your personal background, uh, giving you the expertise that you have in this uh, exciting subject that we're going to be covering today, and a little bit about your practice, and then we'll jump in.
2: Okay, Joe. It's thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to uh, to be on your program. Uh, I started practicing law in. uh, in 1970, so I've been at it for a while. Um, during that period, I was—I've been primarily primarily a litigator. Have um, been involved in um, many bankruptcy cases. I've been a bankruptcy trustee since 1978. Have handled uh, about 15,000 cases uh, during that time period. I'm also a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, um, also the. Uh, international Ins- insolvency institute which is like the american college except on an international basis uh, i'm also a u.s delegate uh... To united nations to and working group five on insolvency and have um, been involved in that activity for twenty years uh... my primary practice is um, getting involved in fraud cases and tracing funds uh... in different jurisdictions around the world which I've done
1: since 1985. Wonderful, Chris. I appreciate that. Uh, Our subject matter that we're going to be covering today uh, is exactly that, and it will be enforcing your U.S. judgment in international jurisdictions. We've got several bullet points that we'd like to cover this afternoon, time allowing. We're going to be talking about the fundamental international rules, the traps that you should be aware of. We'll talk about obtaining evidence in the United States for offshore recovery. We'll be discussing the mutual legal assistance treaties between the United States and other countries. And time permitting, we'll get into a few case studies to show the application of these various processes. With that, Chris, I'm going to let you go ahead and get started with the fundamental international rules.
2: Okay, the... The most fundamental uh, international rule is that you have to uh, stringently pay attention to and recognize and respect the laws of other countries, which means that you can't uh, violate the laws. Uh, You have to understand what the laws are in those jurisdictions, But um, and in a minute I'll explain why that's important, but that's a fundamental rule. Uh, because if you don't follow that rule, um, then your cases can be dismissed, you can fr- be frustrated in your recovery actions, um, and you can be sanctioned or criminally charged as um, as part of the process. And with that rule, um, Joe, if you'll permit me, I'd like to talk about some of the traps to be aware of. Please do. If... Um, if I'm involved in a case in the Isle of Man, which the Isle of Man is an offshore jurisdiction uh, in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland, and uh, it's been well recognized as an international offshore jurisdiction. Uh, at points in time, it was the second or, or third largest money transfer point in the world. Um, the Isle of Man. Has a very—it's uh, based on the British system, so it, it has a very excellent uh, judiciary. The judges there are there are called deemsters, but they have a fundamental rule, and that is if you obtain information in the Isle of Man, then you cannot use that information anywhere else in the world without the consent of the judge or the deemster in that jurisdiction. And if you violate that rule, uh, then your action uh, is stricken uh, with prejudice to be, to be reviled. And so it's critical that you have to understand the laws of the jurisdictions in which you're going to be engaged in. Uh, otherwise, you can fall. Uh, um, again, it's a fundamental rule that you have to respect the, uh, the rules and the respective jurisdictions that you're engaged in. Another example is the Cayman Islands.
1: Chris, before you move to the the Cayman Islands, if you don't mind, would you go back and just give us an example of how someone might be obtaining uh, information in one country and if they use it, that would preclude them from using that anywhere else and what the repercussions for that could be?
2: Sure, I'll be glad to. One of the cases um, that I was engaged in, is there was over $100 million transferred to the Isle of Man. And I was able to trace those funds into the Isle of Man, and there's different um, procedures based on British jurisdiction that I was able to file an action there um, ex parte without notifying the defendant. And uh, getting an order, ex parte order, for the Isle of Man Bank Limited, which is one of the primary banks in the Isle of Man, to give me all the information in regard to the account and where those funds went. And what we learned when we got the order, and and the uh, Deemster ordered that information provided uh, in 24 hours uh, from the bank, and also there was a seal and gag order that the bank was not allowed to tell the customer they had provided that information. And the documents or the information we got back from the bank was that a local accountant uh, had the funds in their account. Um, In the Isle of Man, uh, an accountant can hold uh, funds in their account commingled, so they can have trust funds, uh, they can have an operating account, they have to have records as to how it's allocated, but you can't tell just from the documents. And so we filed an additional action in the Isle of Man to obtain information uh, from the accountant. Again, we got a seal and gag order. The Deemster uh, provided that order right away. Uh, we showed up at the accountant's office at 7 o'clock the next morning before he got there, and his staff was required to turn all the records over. And the records showed that funds had went from the Isle of Man to the Cayman Islands to the Channel Islands to the Netherlands and other jurisdictions. We could not use that information in filing actions in those other jurisdictions where the funds went until we first went back to Deemster to get an order approving the use of that information uh, to pursue those funds. And in that situation, if we would have... Um, I've been involved in cases where individuals uh, failed to adhere to that procedure... And their cases were struck, and uh, they were struck with prejudice, so that way they couldn't be refiled. And so that becomes an issue you have to be very careful about, because while those, while the Isle of Man and other jurisdictions will um, provide substantial information, you have to strictly comply with their laws. Otherwise, you're in a situation you can um, you can terminate your entire ability to continue tracing and recover funds. In that case, we filed an application, the Deemster granted the application, and we filed the actions in the different jurisdictions.
1: Great. That is a wonderful example. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Sorry to have interrupted you, but I wanted to be sure and get that in for the use of our benefit of our uh, listeners. Go ahead with your next example.
2: Uh, another example is Switzerland you know commonly when funds are transferred the first thing somebody does is they send a demand letter saying uh we want our funds back you know here's our funds they were transferred and in switzerland only uh, attorneys who are registered debt collectors uh, can send that kind of of letter and just a classic example of the repercussions that can occur is there was a German company uh, that was owed money from a Swiss company. And, the, uh, and they were relatively close to where the, um, the company was. They were providing the, uh, the products for in Switzerland. And a, a German accountant went to the company and said, you failed to pay us and you need to go ahead and remit payment to Stoanoing. The Swiss company made a complaint to the public prosecutor saying the German uh, the German accountant was not authorized to make that request. The prosecutor looked at it, uh, charged, criminally charged the accountant. He was convicted and spent six months in jail. Klatt's example of what not to do. The, the other aspect of that was that because the accountant had violated Swiss law, the company is not entitled or able to collect the debt, so that's another example of how you can uh, get in substantial problems. Um, uh, how you get in substantial problems if you don't follow the procedure. Uh, the now, last Chris, was I that was that just because
1: sorry? it was uh, that case was already uh, in the courts? Uh, if it had not been, could the accountant have just, as a part of his day to day work, on getting accounts receivable? tried to collect that or ask them to pay their debt, or can they never do that?
2: They can never do that. The only person that can request debt to be paid is an attorney who's authorized to undertake that. And so it's very important um, in retaining Swiss counsel to make sure they're properly um, licensed and authenticated in that country, because otherwise, if an action's brought Then they actually can be struck if the individual uh, is not properly licensed.
1: Okay, so if we were doing business with somebody in that country and they had not met their monthly payment obligation, we couldn't ask them to pay it?
2: You could not. We'd have to get an attorney to pay it. But if they were in Switzerland, you could not. You'd have to retain Swiss counsel and have Swiss counsel make the demand. And under Swiss law, if there's a demand made and they don't pay, then they're obligated obligate to pay the attorney fees. So okay. the, the issue, again, is you need to understand the laws and the jurisdiction and comply with those because if the if the German company would have hired Swiss counsel, made the demand, the company hadn't paid, and the, and the Swiss counsel would have sued them, they could have recovered uh, all their money uh, plus their attorney fees without their accountant spending six months in jail.
1: Okay, thank you.
2: The third aspect, or the third example, and I'm just doing these because these are really important, uh, because these can create massive problems if you don't pay attention um, in the respective jurisdiction. The last jurisdiction I wanted to address is the Cayman Islands. Uh, I was trustee in a bankruptcy case in which it was a pyramid Ponzi scheme, and the funds were transferred uh, to the Cayman Islands. Into a, into a bank, and I had all the documentation. And so um, I contacted counsel in the Cayman and said, can I go to the bank and ask the bank to give me the information as to where the funds are? And he said, if you go to a Cayman bank and you're not the signatory on the account, then you can be charged with the felony. And so... Okay. And so I asked him, so I said, so what's the procedure? He said, you can go to the, uh, to the constable, who's the sheriff, and they can give you a waiver. And so I went to the constable, explained the background, and the constable said, I'll call the bank and you'll be authorized to, ma- to ask the question. And I said, and I told him, I said, I appreciate that, but I want a, a letter. He said, why do you want a letter? I said, I want a letter, because I don't want to be in a situation that somebody takes a position that I didn't have authority. And So I got the letter, uh, took to the bank, and they said, um, uh, we cannot disclose that to you, but here's our counsel. You need to talk to our counsel. And so it took me about three months, but at the end of the three months, the counsel for the bank voluntarily based on documentation of my authority as a bankruptcy trustee uh... turned all the information over again that's an example if you do it the right way uh, otherwise um, i could be in a situation of uh, getting criminally indicted and again that would put uh, that would place a problem in bringing the action to try to recover and i, I won't go into additional detail on that issue except for one item um, about 15 years ago, I got called by another bankruptcy trustee in the United States, and he was in jail in Chile. And he <laughs> had been appointed as a bankruptcy trustee over a debtor. The debtor had substantial property in Chile that was free and clear. So the trustee went down and said, I want to take control of the property uh, but he didn't go through the procedures of filing an action to be recognized um, under Chilean law, and so they put him in jail. And so after f- he spent four days in jail, and I was able to, then to get him out um, with uh, great apologies to the court in Chile for not uh, going through the proper procedures, um, we were able to allow, we were able to have him recognized and then eventually sell the property. But he was in jeopardy of losing the ability to sell that property because uh, he, didn't, he didn't check through and find the procedures ahead of time. And, and this is critical. And, and often in these cases, especially when you're uh, looking for assets overseas, you may be involved in five or six jurisdictions because the money may have been transferred to different locales. And so it's critical as far as that process to make sure you're complying with the laws in each of the respective jurisdictions. Because generally overseas, there's a rule of complete disclosure. And if you get into a problem in Switzerland, or you get into a problem in the Isle of Man, or you get into a problem in the Caymans, then you have to disclose that in any application you file in any other country. And if If part of that disclosure is you violate the law in another jurisdiction and your case is dismissed, you've got a very good chance of the court saying, you acted in bad faith, and I'm not going to grant you the relief in this jurisdiction. So these kind of issues can have wide-ranging effects, and you have to be very careful because the defendants try to lure you into examples. I, I actually had one... Application filed in the Isle of Man to strike the case because I disclosed information in the United States. They said in the deposition, I disclosed the information I obtained. And so we had a hearing before the Isle of Man court. I presented the deposition. The Deemster looked at it and said, Mr. Edmund, you did not violate, uh, my, uh, my rule of disclosure. Uh, the issues you learned here were not disclosed. And so he then assessed cost, and penalties against the defendants and the, and the attorney fees, but when I talked to their counsel, um, I, my counsel, my local counsel said, "Was this worth it? Was it worth to pay all the money you had to?" And they said it was worth the risk. If we could have got the case struck, it was. Uh, um, and and what that and what that did, is because of the fact they acted in, they acted in bad faith, then they the counsel. And the defendants lost credibility with the Deemster. And so that actually helped us going through the case. But you have to be very careful. And so these are just predicate issues. You don't want to be in a situation uh, that you restrict your ability to recover funds as part of the process.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. It's time for our first break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. <laughs>
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement, you can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Okay, we're back with our guest, Chris Redmond, speaking on enforcing our U.S. judgments in international jurisdictions. So, Chris, you want to... uh, Give us some information now about uh, obtaining information and evidence in the United States for use in offshore recoveries. I know that's another tricky process, but uh, it certainly can be done. So explain that to us.
2: Okay, Joe, thank you. Um, We've talked about the impediments to be careful about, but now the, the focal point is how do you obtain information in order to bring the actions in the overseas jurisdictions, and one thing I should point out is, any judgment in the U.S. will not be recognized in any in any other jurisdiction in, any, any in the world. You have to file what's called a fresh action, and so part of the issue is you have to make a decision early on in the case, once you obtain the basic background information, is whether you want to initiate the case here in the U.S., or if you want to file it originally in the, in the overseas jurisdictions. And often in the overseas jurisdictions, it saves a second case being filed. And also there's many uh, procedures that are available uh, in the overseas jurisdictions that are not in the U.S. But let's now talk about funds have been diverted, let's say, from your company or from you, they've been transferred uh, to an overseas jurisdiction. And so you want to obtain information, evidence, of where to go with that. And one issue that is very important to recognize is that people have a misunderstanding that when funds are transferred to an overseas jurisdiction, they're in that same jurisdiction, and they're in the same bank they were transferred to. In, In one of the cases I had... There's over 140 transfers uh, in eight different countries. So you have to be prepared for that. So the issue is how do you obtain information to decide where to file and where to proceed? One of the uh, benefits is if there's a bankruptcy proceeding, which in many of these cases, uh, the companies are insolvent, um, and there's a trustee, then the trustee has the ability in a fraud case to use what's called an MLAT, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty Request. What an MLAT is, it's a request for information between countries. So the U.S. can ask information from Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or the Isle of Man. And in the early, in, in the late 1980s, I worked with the Office of International Affairs, which is part of the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and obtained uh, the consent of Richard Owens at that time, who was the head of that agency, um, as a bankruptcy trustee to submit MLATs in fraud cases to foreign jurisdictions. Um, And in that situation, I had actually prepared prepare the MLAT, but uh, in procedurally what happened in that case is I prepared the MLAT, which was about 80 pages long, I sent it to the Office of International Affairs. They reviewed it to make sure there was treaty information um, that was complied with. They sent it to the Swiss Central Authority. They reviewed it, determined it was within the treaty, and then they sent it to, to the public prosecutors in the local jurisdictions. And the information I was asking for was identified the fund transfers that went from the U.S. to Switzerland, the banks they went into, and I was asking uh, for information in regard to uh, who the signatory in those accounts were, uh, all the transfers that took place, where the transfers took place, if the funds were transferred to other Swiss banks. Um, they obtained the same information uh, from those uh, loca- from those different banks, and so it took. It, it's lies take a while. But eight months later, I got a packet from the uh, Swiss Central Authority in Zurich with various documents. Documents included the original signature cards so of the twelve accounts these individuals had, uh, a complete copy of all the bank statements in English, because they were from the U.S. and so they asked for the uh, statements to be in English. So, uh, and then I got an affidavit from the account officer. Detailing who the responsible parties were uh, that were involved in these various accounts, and what that document what those documents showed was that there was an accountant that was formerly a Swiss citizen that had come to the u s and become a swiss uh, become an American citizen, and the accounts were all in his name and that chris uh, let me had, let
1: me ask you can can we get MLAT treaties in civil matters as well as in criminal matters? And when you say fraud, of course, we deal with both civil fraud and criminal fraud, so the same question applies
2: there. I can get, I can get um, MLATs only through civil proceedings such as bankruptcy, where I'm the trustee. Now, there's another procedure uh, in criminal cases that also works well is called a Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And uh, I actually initiated that procedure in in 1984 in a Pyramid Ponzi case I was appointed trustee. Um, There were 12 defendants charged that raised $180 million transferred around the world and it destroyed all the bank records. I mean, literally shredded everything. Uh, The when I was appointed, uh, I went through and analyzed Rule 6E, uh, and that basically says with the consent of the Attorney General of the United States, a criminal court can grant you access to all the uh, criminal investigation files. And so I went to the Attorney General uh, as a bankruptcy trustee. I got consent uh, from uh, the Attorney General, filed the action in, in the federal district court, in, in, in Kansas City, where the case is pending, and uh, after, and they had 12 defendants, and so it was a very contested hearing. But after that hearing, the court issued a long opinion setting forth that I was under that rule, I was entitled to records. And so I ended up getting uh, 36 banker's boxes of documents all the bank accounts, um, there's actually accounting records. Uh, It was an amazing amount of information. And the benefit of using Rule 6E materials is that the criminal authorities often look at prosecuting a number of people. And so they do all the background checks. And in that case, they were looking at 20 different people, but they only charged 12. But the 20 they had looked at, the other eight, I had all the documents and details on the money that got, uh, improperly, and so I used that information to file suits against them and recover those funds and so uh, that was the ability to uh, obtain records showing funds transferred to overseas jurisdictions and gave the base uh, for the filing of the actions overseas there's one other rule in the u s it's a uh, it's a it's a federal uh, statute called twenty eight usc seventeen eighty two And that statute says you can file an application, which means you don't file a full case. You just file an application to obtain information to initiate foreign litigation. And and I can't tell you the name of the case. For example, recently uh, I represented a bankruptcy trustee out of South America, and there have been massive diversions of several hundred million dollars in the case, and one of the issues in that case was that the defendants, the, the bankrupts, had purchased a Cessna citation for about $7 million and funds that went to it. And so the trustee in Brazil wanted to know background information about who the parties were so he could bring actions. And so I filed a 1782 action to obtain that information uh, from the plane manufacturer. And as part of that process, I requested the court to seal the case. And sealing the case means that they sealed the entire case. You don't... If you go to the courthouse to say, is this case on file, then it's not disclosed. And so I, I was able to do that for three months. And during the time period, I got all the information for the trustee so they can initiate litigation against the, the individuals who were who part and parcel of that action. And so these are procedures that you can obtain the basic information the basic evidence to bring the actions in, in the overseas jurisdictions
1: just a sidebar comment on that too uh chris a lot of people are not aware but under 6e under the right circumstances you can also get uh by proper application and approval of the court uh bankruptcy, uh, not bankruptcy, but uh, grand jury records, uh, if the case has been concluded with the grand jury and there's no objection from the prosecutors, the court will, on some occasions, release that information to you, and it can be extremely
2: valuable. That, that is correct, and I should mention that. In addition, the other thing you can obtain with a 6E request is, to the extent the prosecutors, uh, the, the criminal prosecutors have, have have submitted Mlat requests to other countries about um, bank accounts, asset transfers, etc. Uh, that in that 36 boxes or the 66 boxes of documents, there were four Mlat requests and responses, which provide provide very substantial information. And the um, as part of that order of the court, I was authorized to use any of that evidence in any jurisdiction. Um, but, obviously, one of those cases was involved in the Isle of Man, and so because I knew the Isle of Man procedures, that you couldn't use the evidence uh, obtained in that country without a court's order, I, I, um, I did not use anything from the Isle of Man until I'd actually went to Deemster and, and made the request to make sure I didn't put myself in a position that I couldn't use that, uh, I couldn't use that information.
1: You had talked a good bit about uh, the bankruptcy trustees and the power they have of getting this sort of information, but can you speak to other situations where a bankruptcy trustee is not involved and how the same information may be able to be obtained uh, legally?
2: Yes, 1782 doesn't require you to be a bankruptcy trustee. You can just be a private litigant, Um, and we use 1782 in situations where. Individuals have had funds um, uh, divested from them improperly in the United States and transferred overseas, and we've used the 1782 as a vehicle to obtain um, all that information. The MLAT procedure uh, that I talked about has to be used uh, by the bankruptcy trustee. There's no recognition of a private individual uh, being allowed to do that. But in Rule 6E, uh, we had a number of cases... We represented uh, Hilton Hotels, and uh, and went in in um, in a criminal case in New York, and was able to obtain uh, very substantial 6E records, uh, which was a basis uh, that we were able to effectuate recovery as part of the process.
1: Are there circumstances where you can force a foreigner into uh, bankruptcy in their country as opposed to involuntary bankruptcy here in the United States?
2: Yes, we've fact, I've, in fact, done that in a number of cases. Uh, in the Isle of Man, and the Channel Islands, in the Caymans, uh, you can file, in, 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 one case in, the Cayman, in one case in the Isle of Man, um, there are massive transfers in a huge Pyramid Ponzi's case, um, and we didn't want to go through all the detail of going through and getting a judgment in the United States and then having to reopen the case. So we actually filed a winding-up proceeding, which is what a bankruptcy is actually called in the British jurisdictions in the Isle of Man. And the the deemster, the judge, uh, heard about four hours of testimony about the background and then um, granted the application for the winding-up proceeding. And, And in that case, actually, uh, I and a, and a local accountant were appointed as the co liquidators. In, in most in the cases, most of the overseas cases, they appoint co liquidators. So if something happens to one party, uh, the other is, is still functional. And so, okay. and because of that, and because of the fact that I was a co liquidator in the Isle of Man, uh, there's treaties between a lot of the offshore jurisdictions. And so there have been substantial fund transfers to the Netherlands, uh to Curacao. And um I took the recognition uh and the opening uh, the, the opening of the proceeding, the winding up proceeding, and in, in uh less than six days I was recognized um in in Curacao and the importance of that is that when you become the co liquidator or you became the bankruptcy trustee you actually, for a company, actually become the CEO and the CFO and, and the board of directors all ro- rolled into one. So, <laughs> and so in the case, um, when we filed um, a winding up or seeing the Isle of Man, once that was granted, I went to all the banks where there were accounts, and I said, I'm the co liquidator And they had, without a court order, they had to give me all the information, all the bank account information. Plus, the other benefit is that um, when you're the bankruptcy trustee uh, or a a co-liquidator, you can also go to their accountant, and you can also go to their counsel and say, I am now the CFO. I'm now the CEO. I'm now the board of directors, and you have to give me all your information, and you have to explain to me all the background information in the case. Okay, so,
1: Chris, you've got about 30 seconds to wrap this up before our next break.
2: Okay. Um, and so those kind of procedures, uh, carefully thought out, that's, that's why it's very important once you get the evidence through these different procedures, the next step is, is how do you proceed? You know, how do you take that evidence and actually effectuate your recoveries? In the, next, in the next segment, I'll explain some case studies of how we actually did that.
1: Very good. We'll go to break and come back and talk about case studies and how we're applying all this good information you've been sharing with us.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement, you can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Well, we're back from break uh, with our guest Chris Redmond discussing enforcing your U.S. judgment in international jurisdictions. Chris, it's time to apply some of this knowledge you've been sharing with us and uh, put it into some case histories that our listeners can relate to.
2: Okay, Joe, I appreciate that. Uh, what I'm going to tell you is, is I can't give you names because it's still privileged information, but I can explain some case studies, which, which I think your listeners will find interesting. Uh, one of the most difficult jurisdictions in the world has always been uh, Switzerland, as the ability to obtain information from saying that it's absolutely impossible to uh, obtain records information uh, from, and I, I explained a couple of procedures, but let's take the situation that uh, you're a company in the U.S. You've had funds diverted from you improperly and transferred into Switzerland, and you're um, you're trying to get information about. Uh, where those funds went and how they can be uh, recovered. What many people don't understand is that, and Switzerland is a civil law jurisdiction. In the world, we have common law jurisdictions and civil law. Civil laws are based on statute; common law are based on judge-made law. And so, strict, uh, Switzerland is very strict that there has to be statutory compliance. So. Under the example I gave, and and this actually happened in a case we had, um, um, a client of mine um, was partners with another individual actually in Denver, uh, sold a uh, business there after they'd been together for 20 years. Um, They received about $30 million for it. Uh, Each of them were entitled to one half the proceeds. Well, the one partner who uh, coordinated the closing of the transaction kept the half for himself, but the other partner's half he took and transferred to Switzerland. And so the, uh, the partner who had funds uh, taken from him and transferred to Switzerland called and said, what can we do? And so we put together the documents, the transfers, the sale documents explaining the whole background and then I got hold of counsel I work with in Zurich. Uh, I flew to Zurich. We met the public prosecutor. And in Switzerland, money laundering is a criminal uh, criminal offense. And if you're a victim, then you're entitled to bring an action under Swiss law, whether you're a Swiss national or whether you're a national of any other jurisdiction uh, yeah. or th- for money laundering, and so, and in that case, what we do is we provide a very good description of the background, all the documents, and then uh, in that case, we we had located the wire transfers into what bank the funds have been transferred into Switzerland, and so um, we had made a request to the prosecutor to uh, obtain the records from the bank uh, to verify the funds were received there and where the funds were transmitted to. Now, the, the important issue is that if you're a victim and the prosecutor determines that there is a reasonable likelihood that an offense occurred, he can undertake an investigation. The, the critical point here is that the victim is entitled to all the information the prosecutor receives. So when the, inf- when the prosecutor gets back the information <laughs> from the bank, about the receipt of the funds and where the funds went, then the uh, victim is not only entitled to see that, but the victim is entitled to use that to bring a civil action if necessary. And so in that case, we actually, uh, the funds had been transferred to another Swiss bank, but the prosecutor had found that, and so we filed an action to freeze uh, the funds. And so the, uh, the other partner came back, and said, okay, you got me. I'll release the funds to you. And we told, um, um, we told his counsel, there's two issues here. One's a civil proceeding and one's a criminal proceeding. And, and uh, our client has no intention of withdrawing the criminal proceeding. So you have to deal with the Swiss prosecutor. And if they convict you, you're probably going to spend two to four years in jail. And so that, that criminal proceeding went on, and he actually got convicted. Uh, but the other side on the civil proceeding is that um, we end up getting $500,000 from him, from his portion, uh, as a settlement, saying forth, we're entitled to recoup all the costs and expenses, the damages, and, um, and under Swiss law, because of what he had done improperly, we could have proceeded through the entire case. And he, the defendant in that case, would have had to pay the full balance of any fees and costs uh, we had as part of the process. And so, and that that procedure in civil law is also available in most of the uh, European Union countries because they have a civil law system and they have a similar procedure. So that um, that procedure of bringing a criminal action is very effective. And in those cases we actually hire a very good forensic accountant, and the accountant puts it all together. So there's a roadmap. So if there's any testimony required, the, the, um, the uh, forensic accountant can actually testify and, and uh, provide all the basis for the uh, prosecutor. But the forensic accountant also, in conjunction with the counsel, prepares all the requests for information that uh, that the prosecutor is uh, requested uh, to provide, and we often in cases will have transfers through common law jurisdictions go to Switzerland because they think it's going to break the chain. But uh, part of the problem is that once a uh, request for the criminal investigation is made and it's opened up, they have to live with it, and so they and and so our. Our our settlement of our civil proceeding has nothing to do with the criminal case because that's that's an independent proceeding. Um, And so, in that case, um, our client was very happy because not only did he recover the funds, he recovered additional funds to cover all his costs and expense. But at the same time, the individual was being criminally charged and and ended up actually serving some time given the the offenses that he occurred. let me go to a civil law jurisdiction now, or excuse me, let me go to a common law jurisdiction now to explain some of the procedures that are available there. Um, one of the, there's a number of procedures, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but one issue I'd like to talk about is, is a Norwich Pharmacal proceeding. And Norwich Pharmacal actually came out of uh, a, a Canadian proceeding and then an English proceeding, but the basic concept is this. If you have an instant third party who's holding assets, so like in the case a bank may be holding assets that a fraudster has diverted and is holding those, um, then under Norris Pharmacal, you can file an application in the jurisdiction where the bank is. You can ask the court to order the bank to provide all the information about the bank accounts all the transfers that, that have taken place and you can also as part of that do it ex parte which means you don't have to notify the defendant that you filed this and you can also obtain what's called a seal and gag order which means that the bank is restricted from disclosing the fact that they've provided this information to you and this is very very beneficial because in one case uh, we had transfers through a number of jurisdictions, the, the funds went from the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, to the Caymans, and so in each of these cases, in each of these jurisdictions, we filed Norwich Pharmacal proceedings. Um, we got all the information about where the funds went. Uh, the defendant was never there was, was never disclosed this information by the bank, and so once we found where the money actually resided at the end. Uh, we went ahead and and uh, then brought uh, the freezing orders to freeze those funds and have them turned over and if uh, if we didn't have the seal and gag uh, orders then that that defendant would have been put on notice and would have transferred those funds to other jurisdictions making it dip, more difficult to uh, to ultimately recover uh, that income. One of the other issues that is important in regard to uh, this whole process is that you're not only looking for the money. If you have parties that participate, uh, if you have attorneys, if you have accountants that help, uh, they're part of the conspiracy to transfer funds, then you can obtain and bring actions against them for joint and several liability for the full balance. Uh, that includes banks. There's a action pending right now that's being tried, in regard to Stanford International case in Canada, where uh, TD Bank was one of the two primary uh, depositories that Alan Stanford used in his $10 billion Ponzi scheme <laughs> in Antigua. And uh, there's an issue, I'm not going to go into all the details because it's the middle of a trial, but there's issues about whether the bank knew what was going on and had information. And the action against the TD Bank That's that's being tried now is uh, for $4 billion. Because that's the amount of money that transferred through the bank um, at the time that the um, joint liquidators um, allege that uh, the bank knew that Stanford was committing a a fraud scheme. And so.
1: All right. Chris, let me ask you, if I may interrupt you for a moment, uh, about Canadian. Uh, situations uh, if you have a US federal court judgment against uh, multiple judgment debtors uh, some of some of whom are individuals or entities uh, in Canada others in the United States can you take that US judgment and uh, apply it into Canada and perhaps use Norwich pharmaceutical or some of the other laws like that to freeze those funds to uh, ensure that they don't dissipate while we're working the case?
2: Uh, yes, you can. But what you have to do in Canada is, again, you have to file the fresh action. because Even while Canada has recognition procedures, you still have to file a new case. And... Um, the, the, one, the one exception is if, if you're a bankruptcy trustee and you uh, have assets in Canada, then you can file what's called a, um, a Chapter 15 proceeding in Canada, which is based upon the Unstraw Model Law and cross-border recognition. And that proceeding is an exodied proceeding where you can be recognized as a former representative and have, and then determined to have standing in Canada. And once you have standing in Canada, then you can bring the actions. And in the the situation, once you get standing, you can actually bring an action to have the judgment recognized, but then you can also effectuate freeze orders as part of the process. And uh, and along those lines, there's one thing I'd like to mention that's very important. Uh, Two minutes. I've been a U.S. delegate to UNCITRAL for 20 years. And two years ago, we actually developed and passed a model law on the recognition of cross border insolvency judgments, and that law is intended as it's adopted by different countries that law is intended to recognize insolvency judgments from one country to another. so it's going to expedite this process of getting recognition and the, the provision of that law actually state that upon filing uh, the court can grant uh, grant you relief to obtain seizure orders. And the court, if they determine the judgment is, um, is proper from the uh, from the home jurisdiction, uh, then you don't have to put a bond up with that either. Um, and they, the other aspect that's important is that the US has made a proposal to to UNCITRAL, the United Nations to develop a legislative guide on asset tracing and recovery to make a lot of these procedures I've talked about uniform, and that's going to be uh, that's up for consideration in July of next year to uh, actually uh, become a mandate to proceed with that um, with that as a uh, legislative guide or model law.
1: that's wonderful Chris thank you so much for being our special guest today I know you have enlightened our audience uh, more than uh, we could ever anticipate we appreciate uh, your expertise and your time Uh, ladies and gentlemen our guest next week will be Warren Cluck, Esquire with Holland and Knight out of their New York City office and Warren is going to be sharing with us a process that he has perfected on tracing uh, wire transfers uh, globally uh, for recovery so we're looking forward to that thank you very much Chris thank you ladies and gentlemen for being with us and remember it's not what you win it's what you recover
0: that matters good evening you for tuning in to the judgment enforcement hour be sure to join joe dickerson and another guest next wednesday at 7 p.m eastern time and 4 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel we'll bring you more case studies and advice next week